Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And after an extended break, we're back. This episode we're continuing the branches of the Mabinogi. I've squeezed all of the third branch into this admittedly very lengthy episode. But before we get into that, I've got some news which I am very excited about, but which will only be relevant to a very small percentage of you. I have my first ever live event. It's on Saturday the 27th of May 2023, sometime in the late afternoon, and I really couldn't ask for a more appropriate venue. It'll be at the Centre for Folklore, Myth and Magic, and that's in Todmorden, a town which is technically in West Yorkshire, but has the traditional Yorkshire-Lancashire border running right through it. I've entitled the event Demons, Darkness and Deadly Damsels, and I'll be telling two stories I've told already on the podcast, and from that title you might be able to work out which ones, though I hope the live tellings are significantly different. The exact timing is yet to be arranged, but I'll be making announcements on all my social media, so please do follow me there if you're interested. And who knows, if it goes well and there's interest, maybe I'll come to somewhere nearer to you in the future. Genuinely would be great to hear from anyone who would like to come to a live show so I can gauge interest, though I'm well aware that many of you will be listening from places outside of my travel budget, at least for the moment. I should also say that if you're anywhere even vaguely near Todmorden, even if you can't make my event, the Centre for Folklore, Myth and Magic has so much stuff going on, an absolutely packed programme, and I'm sure you would find something there that you would enjoy. So, if that applied to you, fantastic. For the vast majority of you who it did not, let's get on with the episode. The third branch of the Mabinogi. Oh no, wait, a couple of things. A very brief side note about terminology here. I have used the term Mabinogi and Mabinogion throughout these episodes. Mabinogi is definitely the correct one, but Mabinogion is very widely used, despite essentially being a transcription error. I think in this episode, I've continued to use both a little bit inconsistently. But in some ways, they're both kind of right now, because even though it's an error, the term Mabinogion is very widely known. Right, the first of many asides there. As always with these continuing series, I'd advise you to listen to the previous ones before starting here, but I can't make you do so, so do as you like. Whether you have or haven't, I'm still going to give a recap. Given the release schedule on the podcast, I realise the first branch came out almost five years ago, so a reminder is necessary for everyone, not least of all me. But rather than recap the whole stories, I'm only going to give you the points that I think are pertinent for this story. For the first branch and the second branch were pretty separate, different stories, but characters and events from both now combine to make this new third branch, which is not how tree branches work at all, but let's not worry about that too much. So, previously on Tales of Britain and Ireland. The first branch featured Puig, Prince of Devon, and he married Rhiannon, a woman who appeared magical at first, appearing on a time and space-defying horse, and then having a magical space-defying bag, bigger on the inside than the outside. And this bag of holding she used to defeat Gwawl, a man who was her betrothed. The defeat wasn't very subtle, Puig put him in the bag and beat him up until he agreed to stop being betrothed to her. 
win. Now, as time went on over the course of that story, Rhiannon seemed to become less otherworldly. It's not commented on in the narrative, but she just seems to shed her magical powers and seems more human. Now, Rhiannon and Poi have a son. There's lots of shenanigans around that, to use a totally inappropriate word, I'm not going to recount them here, but eventually all is good, and their son, Prideri, is fine. He grows up to be a great guy, good at everything, and in pretty much a footnote to that branch which I really glossed over at the end of the last episode, Poik dies. No details given on that, but Prideri, his son, becomes ruler of the kingdom, your classic primogeniture. It's not mentioned then, but Rhiannon is 100% still alive at that point, and doing alright for herself. So, in the Kingdom of Dovered, in the southwest of Wales, you've got Prideri ruling, Rhiannon being his fairly sprightly queen mother. Then we have the second branch, in which Prideri makes a blink and you'll miss it appearance. In that story, Bendigird Fran, or Bran, King of the Britons, and a giant, leads an army of almost all the fighting men of Britain into Ireland and Prideri goes with that army. They leave behind a kind of skeleton staff. The country is left under the care of Bran's son, next in line to the throne. Don't worry if you don't remember that bit, it was a minor point of the last story, but a more important part of this one. Anyway, a war happens, and it's gruesome and huge, and pretty much everyone dies. You could, I suppose, consider it a victory for the Britons. Like, highly technically, if you were a psychopath. But all the many, many Britons who died really couldn't. And by the end of the story, only seven of them are actually left. Of those survivors, one is Pluderi, and the other one we need to worry about for this story is Manawudan, King Bran's brother, whose pronunciation I have changed slightly since the last episode, but which is certainly still not right. In fact, let's break off here to have a little word on pronunciation generally. I'm not a Welsh speaker, I certainly can't roll my R's, for that matter, I have problems pronouncing TH properly in English, as you might have noticed. Therefore, please do not take these as the correct pronunciations. I've put some links on my website to pronunciation guides by actual Welsh speakers, who also have some fantastic folklore content. Go and check those out. For any of the Welsh speakers listening, I hope you can forgive me and enjoy these stories anyway. But, quite genuinely, I understand if you cannot. So, where were we? Oh yes. Manawudan and Prideri are among the survivors. The seven survivors limp back to the island we now call Great Britain, and they call the Island of the Mighty. There's some otherworldly, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, Jeremy-Beremy business that happens, but that's not so important for this story. As what is important is the fact that when they go to find Bran's son left in charge, well, he's been overthrown, and for all intents and purposes, murdered. That deed was done by a bloke named Kazwathlan, and he was the cousin of King Bran. He used an invisibility cloak to carry out his successful coup. And that brings us pretty much up to speed. The head of the giant king is now buried, and the survivors can now go about their business on this island, ruled over by the traitorous Kazwathlan, as we open the third branch. Now, if you did listen to that last episode and are thinking, hang on, Graham, 80-odd years has passed for them. Why is Kazwathlin still alive? Well, I'm also wondering that too. It's not mentioned in the story, of course, but let's, let's justify it by saying that for the survivors, 80 years of time had passed, but in the human world, it was but a blink of an eye. A kind of reverse being in fairyland rules. If you weren't wondering about that, don't worry about it. 
Okay, that's the recap over. Now we can finally start the story. Branch free of the Mabinogi. Except no, we can't. Because, ridiculously, I am compelled to give you just a little bit of a flavour of the story that is to come. Especially compared to the previous Mabinogi stories. As I've just outlined, the previous branches of the Mabinogi have consisted of one series of high-stakes magical adventures, followed by an absolutely epic account of a magical battle. And in comparison to that, this branch takes a bit of a sharp turn. It has a real, the executives messed with the franchise type feel to it. To get even more specific, I feel like the original writers were probably done with the series. They didn't want to compromise their artistic vision, but the studio wanted to squeeze some more money out of it. So they took the licensing and went to some well-respected writer, maybe in a different genre, who couldn't command as much money, and gave him, her or them, the characters, and said, work these into a tale, what happens next? And what you get is this. A tale that... It's not bad, it's definitely not bad, I wouldn't tell it to you if it was. It's got lots of iconic scenes and character development and great bits. But some interesting narrative choices were made. And tonally, it's certainly a shift for the series. And that's the last I'll save it until the end. Okay, right now, many minutes into this podcast, let's get this story started. The third branch of the Mabinogi. We open on an iconic scene. Manawoodan gazes down at the city of London, capital of the island even at that time. The city, which is his family's birthright, now in the hands of the villainous Kazwaflan, a man who murdered Manawoodan's nephew and many other fine men along with him. Manawoodan, the rightful claimant to the throne as the son of Hlia, a man who has fought many battles, survived impossible odds, who has returned home to find his kingdom taken from him. He has attended to his duties, and now he has nothing in the world to do but turn his attention to this treacherous usurper. We all know where this is going, don't we? Manawoodan gave a great, woeful sigh at the view of his former home. It seems our hero needs to work through his trauma, really sit with, feel the pain, before he steals himself and focuses on winning back that birthright. He sighs a bit more, and a bit more after that, and generally looks to be in a state of despair and discombobulation. He very much did not look like a man who was going to snap out of it at any second, channel that woe into beginning a blood-soaked revenge quest. No, he looked like a sad and broken man, a man who wrung his hands and declared desperately, Of all of us who have survived, I am the only one not to have anywhere to sleep tonight. And that was true enough. In fact, most of his companions had already left for their own holdings and houses and only one remained alongside Manawoodan. That one was Praderi. He tried to comfort the should-be king. Don't be sad, 
everyone knows you've never asked for land of your own before. For indeed, Manawodan had not. Just his right to be part of his now deceased brother's court. And, Pradelli continued, For that you are respected and known as one of the free undemanding chieftains. Editor's note. Lots of things in Welsh mythology come in threes. I mean, a lot. I'm not going to go into the other two undemanding chieftains here. They usually don't. Just roll with it. But I have nowhere to go, said Manor Wooden, self-pityingly, though not unjustifiably. Braderi seemed very eager to set this right, though. Well, I'll tell you what, if you want some advice, that is, don't want to stick my oar in here. I do, I, I need it. Well, why don't you come with me to Dovid? And not only come with me, but, well, why don't you stay a while? In fact, I tell you what, why don't you basically have it all? Dovid, my kingdom, for nothing, really. Just take it. The seven cantrips are pretty good lands, if I do say so myself. Why don't you have them? I'll keep them in name, I suppose, but basically, they'd be yours to do what you like with. How does that sound? I assume that Manor Woodland was shocked into an astonished, dumb silence. A silence long enough for Pladeri to possibly think more was required. Tell you what, since Dad, Poyuk, died, my mother, she's been single. Why don't you have her, too, into the bargain? Have her? Oh, you know, you don't have to, of course, but she is a fantastic conversationalist, a great wit of the age, and she scrubs up pretty well, too, if I say so myself, by my own mother without it being weird. Editor's note, it was weird. I mean, she was a real knockout stunner in the day, but even now she's a pretty decent catch. This whole bit of the kingdom, and especially with Rhiannon, is so absolutely weird that I'm just not sure what to say about it. Maybe this is what happens when a son is raised separately from his mother, like Pladeri was, by, by two different families in fact, but I really don't feel that adequately explains it. Though as an aside, when I first drafted this story in my mind, I had a line about how this was a thing from the past that just hasn't aged well by modern standards. And then, I chanced upon an advert for a reality TV show launching 2023 called MILF Manor, and I realised that maybe it was just my standards that were out of step with the rest of society. Anyway, this all happened. Pladeri seemingly offered Manawoodan basically his whole kingdom and his own mother just to stop him being sad. I am not privy to the inner workings of Pladeri's mind here, but it certainly all seems odd. I want to give you an explanation, I don't have one. Pladeri, whose name means anxiety, maybe was just really anxious for his friend's poor mental state. Or possibly, and this kind of seems more likely to me, he just didn't want to rule anymore, didn't want the hassle, and saw this as a legitimate route out of it. Manawudan thanked Pladeri and accepted his offer of the kingdom, because, yeah, why not? And this strange gift-giving complete... Off they went to Dovid. Presumably, so Manawodden could unwrap it. When they arrived, Pradari was happily reunited with his own wife, Kigva, after who knows how many years, the timeline is quite unclear, but it was a long time. 
and a great feast was held, because there's always gotta be a feast. And of course at the feast was Rhiannon. And Manawoodan spent some time getting to know the widow Rhiannon, who had already been promised to him in marriage by her own son, and I really can't do anything but present that as creepy as all hell. And he liked what he saw. In his eyes, he'd never seen a woman more fair and beautiful than her, even at whatever age she was now, probably significantly younger than him. Clearly he thought more of her looks than Pradery did. Which, good, I suppose, in this whole messed up situation, Pradery didn't fancy his own mum as much as Manawudden did. And there then came what should have been, by my reading, the most awkward moment. Where Manawudden leans over to Pradery and says, I accept your proposal. And Rhiannon, who's right there, gives an innocent, Ooh, what proposal's that then? And Pradery's all, Ah, mum, I offered the entire kingdom and your hand in marriage to Manawudden. And he's accepted. With a big smile on his face like this wasn't the most outrageous thing to do. But despite my continued attempts to make this seem weird, it was apparently nothing of the sort. Because Rhiannon had clearly had some very good vibes with Manawudden at the feast, and she gave a great enthusiastic, Oh, that's brilliant, I'd love to. And before the feast finished, Manawudden and Rhiannon snuck off for a bit of nookie. Which, given how things have progressed so far, I imagine Pradery noticed and gave a big thumbs up to his good friend and mother. The story never actually touches on the marriage ceremony, but it's safe to assume that the two are basically wed from this point on. And Manawudden's emo phase, where he was sad about his family's kingdom being stolen from him and all his kinsmen being slaughtered in one way or another, but, but not sad enough to do anything about it, well, that seemed to pass. He had a kingdom and a wife now, and apparently that was enough. And for Pradeli, Kigva, Manawudden and Rhiannon, life was good. They wandered around the kingdom, enjoying themselves, hunting and feasting, and in that time the four of them struck a strong friendship. They spent all their time together, enjoyed the rich bounty of the kingdom, a kingdom that was so recently stripped of so many of its people who had died in that war, and which, possibly because of that, was now abundant with game and honey and fish, and maybe crops, but they don't really get much of a look in here. This is your typical heroic keto diet for these guys. Generally, this close-knit family were having the greatest of times. There was just one awkward issue here, one fly in the ointment. You see, Dovid was a sub-kingdom of wider Britain. It owed allegiance to the ruler of the island. That ruler was, of course, Caswathlan, the usurper king. And as part of that arrangement, your typical tribute and homage type system was in place. The rule of the sub-kingdom would have to go and show everybody in a public setting that you were the sub-king and this guy was the over-king. The King Dom? No, forget I said that. And everyone agreed that you acknowledged he was in charge and no one was going to be weird about it. This ceremony was part of the whole deal and if it wasn't observed, Mr Invisibility Cloak might come a-knocking with his sword. And if Man and Wooden had been the legal technical ruler of Dovid, then this might have been more of a problem. But Pladeri was still king in name. I'm not quite sure how this arrangement worked precisely. I think Manawudden maybe got to make the boring decisions, but also the good stuff. 
food, horses, whatever else there was. Really at the edge of my knowledge here. And that Pradeli just got the title, but that's all he wanted, because ruling bored him. But I'm really making a lot of guesswork here. It's quite opaque in the original. But when it came to the Kazwathlan situation, Pradeli was fine. He had no problem genuflecting, and generally being all humble to our opportunist king. He journeyed to Oxford, and either Kazwathlan didn't know about Pradeli playing host to Manor Wooden, the surviving legitimate claimant to the throne, or he didn't care because he was happy to accept Pradeli's grovelling. I'm unsure if he acknowledged him as a war hero, or chided him for being part of the band of people who'd got huge numbers of Britons killed for no apparent gain. Or possibly he thanked him for doing that, so that he had the opportunity to step in and become king. However that whole deal went down, the two parted on as good a terms as possible. Pradeli returned to Divid, and life was pretty good for the four friends with their various odd backstories. Kigva accepted. Feasting, hunting, a life of contentment and leisure, which in the end, oh, it became so boring. The life of the idle rich, hey? How difficult it is for them. Perhaps I'm being unfair, given Pradeli and Manor Wooden had spent over 80 years feasting constantly already, though their memories might not be sharp of it, but even so, it's not too surprising if they were growing a little restless, a little bored of such a life, looking for some frill, perhaps. And perhaps it was that that led them to take a trip up a certain mound that made an appearance in an earlier episode of the Mabinogi. This was no ordinary mound, it was a special place, and Rhiannon for one might have known it very well indeed, for this was the place where, back however long it was, where Poich had climbed up and glimpsed a sight of her, riding a horse that seemed to defy the normal rules of time and space. For this was the mound that when climbed, either resulted in something great happening, or something terrible. Climbing it must have been a big deal then, a high-stakes gamble, exactly the kind of task that would provoke the frisson of danger that made them feel alive again. So it was one night after feasting when I assumed talk of it came up, and the idea must have struck them that this would be just the thing to enliven this dead party. It seems that the four of them somewhat snuck out, a little surreptitiously, waiting for the servants who had fed them to be eating themselves before... Off they went to the mound. And yet, despite leaving the servants behind, our four steadfast companions did not go alone. A number of noble hangers-on went with them. People who were game for some life-changing experiences atop a magical hill. Or at least who didn't want to admit to their mates that they weren't that keen on risking everything on a mystery box hilltop surprise. It was early evening as they climbed the mound. Above them, a hazy blue twilight, speckled with stars. They sat and they talked and they joked and they laughed and they waited. But this little party of adrenaline junkie thrill seekers didn't have to wait long. There came a sound. A tumultuous cacophonous roar. 
that filled the air and their ears and inside their heads. It shook their very bones. They gritted their teeth as they wondered, was this going to be the good thing? Was it going to be the bad thing? Come on, raise the curtain, open the box, give us the big reveal. But instead of a big reveal, first fell upon the party a vast blanket of mist, so dense that they could not make out the person next to them. And with the noise continuing, it seemed to each person that they were completely alone. And as this went on, people began to seriously doubt whether this was the good option. And just as they were becoming panicky, the mist gave way to a dazzling brightness that faded to reveal again that twilight sky. The change was stark. Manor Wooden looked out across a bewildering sight. The shape of the land in front of him was as before. Its contours, its trees, its fields, all the same. But the first thing he noticed was that all the fires of the evening, of which there were many in this busy place, all those fires had, it seemed, been snuffed out. And as he sought to find them with eyes he first of all thought must be playing tricks, he realised that not just the fires, but the farms and homesteads about them, they too seemed to have been extinguished. He could not make a one of them out, nor the herds of animals, all gone. He looked around at his companions, and was shocked to find that of all the brave and foolhardy noble folk who had come on that big gamble up the hill, only three others remained beside himself, Rhiannon, Plideri, and Kigva. All of us were gone. Look, said Kigva, the court still remains. And she pointed to the more robust court buildings that did indeed still remain. Swiftly back down the hill the four went, but as they approached the court, it was the silence that stood out. It took a lot of people to run a court, continually busy milling around. But the mead hall and kitchen, the sleeping quarters and the great chambers, all were eerily quiet, abandoned. Paradoxically, they seemed smaller, as empty familiar spaces often do. Usually so crowded, they were now crossable in just a few steps. A hush fell upon the four as they passed through the ghostly court, as barren and stripped of life as any late 90s MySpace page is today. It didn't need saying, so no one said it out loud. But it was clear now that this time, the bad thing had happened when they'd gone up the mound. Now one move they didn't make here, which I thought they might, is nobody suggested going up the mound again. You know, to see if the good thing happens this time. Suddenly, they'd all become risk-averse. Instead, they spent a strange night in that unfamiliar, well-known place, and woke to the songs of the birds. The wily creatures were already taking advantage of the absence of people to feast upon the food that had been left on the tables. Servants' meals half-finished. And the four of them left this Marie Celeste of courts behind them, went out to explore the rest of the country, packing up provisions with them. Without horses, they had to wander for days across the realm, seeking out any sign of life. But the land was barren, devoid of dwellings, people, anything representing civilization aside from those few buildings of the court. Now, while the animals were gone, it was the domesticated ones only. The wildlife remained, and 
very quickly seemed to be prospering. Now, lest you misunderstand, let me be clear. It was not the whole world that was devoid of a soul but them, because outside of Duvid, life went on as normal. To the rest of the world, I imagine it was a kind of invisible barrier that no one was quite acknowledging. As this went on, it seems the other inhabitants of Britain made no attempts to settle the presumably rich, abandoned lands now available to them. They stayed out. Possibly just avoided talking about it, avoided thinking about it. Maybe couldn't think about it. The barrier wasn't impassable, exactly. It was just... people didn't go over it. Life continued with a dovid-shaped hole nobody ever acknowledged. I assume so. It doesn't actually say so explicitly in the story. I just need to really understand these things, and so I chuck out theories. It's a key feature of my storytelling style, I am apparently powerless to control. It's not in any storytelling advice manuals though, I can tell you that much for free. The point is, Dovid was left alone, abandoned apart from our protagonist quartet. Let's return to them. This gang of four eventually established as much as I have told you about what happened, and not much else besides. They seemed disinclined to return to the hill, once bitten twice shy. But this land was their home, and indeed their province to rule over, though the technicalities of who ruled it between them now seemed rather immaterial. For was it important if it was Pladeli or Manawudan or even one of the women? <laughs> Can you imagine? For there was no one and nothing left to rule over. Perhaps they took it in turns to be monarchs of this nowhere land. For they did not wish to leave it, and they fell into a kind of hunter-gatherer existence. Fishing, gathering honey, eating animals, that protein-heavy diet again. Still getting along absolutely famously. I'll mention again those 80-plus years of feasting with only a few people previously, so normal stuff for the guys, and Rhiannon clearly had something unusual going on with time, and Kigfa seemed to be easygoing. So, despite the fact that lots of people they knew very well were missing, presumed dead, in some highly mysterious and terrifying manner, they enjoyed their idyllic cottagecore non-vegan lifestyle. I mean, it wasn't like they could do anything about what had happened anyway. May as well make the most of it. And soon a whole year had passed by for them in this rural idyll, and the four of them were very happy indeed. And then another year passed, and at the end of that second year, Manawudan said, We can't go on living like this forever. And everyone nodded in much agreement. What happened during that second year will be left to the listener as an exercise to complete. But by the end of it, they were all certain that they wanted to be somewhere else. Somewhere a bit more lively, perhaps. Somewhere maybe with some other people. Manawudan was also clearly a bit on the board side as he proposed that they should take up a craft somewhere else, away from the wasteland that Dovid had become. And so they left their previous home behind them, and the cantress of Dovid were now completely devoid of human life, a lonely, desolate expanse of land, and an absolute wildlife haven. 
though back then that wasn't quite so much of a concern as it might be today. Now, listener, I feel that the events that come next are somewhat jarring in terms of the story, so I want to prepare you a little. Because from this life of feasting, leisure, and wilderness living, these magical warriors, they decide that their best option now is to kind of adopt an upper-middle-class lifestyle and see how that works out for them. A little experiment in seeing how the other half lived, or at least the decile immediately below them. Life in the rest of the Island of the Mighty still very much continued as ever. People getting on with the business of birth, marriage, deaths, and the business that occupies 90% of time in the middle of all that. Business. Or, more simply, work. In a style somewhat reminiscent of the pulp classic Common People, The group moved to the city, the nearest one, the city of Hereford, not far from the borders of the kingdom. And there, they got a job. Well, started their own business, which is sort of the same thing. They started to make saddles. Fine saddles, particularly notable for the pommel. The pommel is the bit of the saddle you grab onto, suggestively. Manowoodan made them from a fine blue enamel. This USP he had apparently learned watching Klasar Hlaisk of Nuid who, if you remember, was the giant who was pally with Manowoodan's brother, Bran, and whose wife gave birth to fully grown armoured warriors, and who apparently did some saddle making on the side. Maybe. So in the original tale, that name is not actually exactly the same name as that giant. It's just very close. There is some debate, but for the purposes of this tale, I'm now going to assume that they were in fact the same person. And watching him make saddles was enough to give Manowoodan a taste for it these decades later. And the people of Hereford, those in the market for saddles at least, they ate it up. You see Jones has got one of those saddles with the blue enamel knobs on. Looks very impressive. Horse seems to like it. Ladies like it. Talk of the town. Really? Well, if Jones has got one, I'll need one as well. Get me one with knobs on. The order book was soon full to bursting. I don't know the exact details of that operation, but soon the four of them and anyone they were employing were working double shift overtime to fulfil all of the orders. A true family-run business success story, and enough to make them forget for a while about all the people that were still missing, presumed magically murdered. Soon the images of the four of them were on the front cover of every business periodical on the Island of the Mighty, with glossy double-page spread profiles written by fawning journalists asking for their 10 secrets to success, their daily routines, their investment portfolio tips, or they would have been had such publications existed. This entrepreneurial success story, like so many entrepreneurial success stories, really was a riches-to-riches tale. So, Mr. Mabclear, oh, you can call me Manowoodan. <laughs> Manowoodan, tell our readers... How did you come up with this innovative idea? The enamel blue pommel? Well, you know, a lot of hard work. I worked my way up from the bottom. A lot of late nights. I think the word genius is a bit overused, but people, not me of course, not me of course, but people have mentioned it in connection with me. If you want the full story, I suppose, I was at my brother, you know, the old king, the giant Bran. I was at his court, like a regular guy, just 
hanging out with his other giant friend who was showing off saddle making and I um I copied that. Yeah, yeah, that's right, the guy who had the cauldron of regeneration, you've heard of him. Regular dude, me. He taught me. So, I suppose, in some ways I owe my success to that, but I think more, more honestly, it's genius. But the group's meteoric rise in the saddling world of Hereford was about to come crashing to earth. For there were other saddlers in the city, all there had been but now their sales were rapidly plummeting to zero as their customers left in droves. These saddlers got together, just some business associates having a quiet lunch, and they drew their plans against our protagonists. How the message was delivered, I don't know. A saddle cut off a horse left in a bed, but however it was delivered, the message came across loud and clear. Leave the business of saddle making, or the saddle makers would resolve this with maximum levels of violence. And so, with sadness in his heart, Manor Wooden went to Pruderi and said, we're going to have to leave town. And Pruderi, understandably, said, what? We've got to leave the saddle makers. They want to kill us. Oh, said Pruderi. We're just going to leave because some saddle makers are threatening us, are we? Some saddle makers. Presumably not even that many of them. Us. Are threatening us. You, the last living member of a very powerful magical warrior lineage. Myself, whose father and through him me, have some undetermined but definite relationship with the Otherworld and its leader. Us two, survivors of the fight against all the armies of Ireland and the undead armies of Ireland. My mother, of dimension-bending ability and incredible cunning, and Kigva. We are being threatened by some saddle makers, so we're going to leave, are we? Manowood nodded. Look, I didn't say anything when you didn't take your throne back, but at least Kazwathlan has an invisibility cloak and a proven record of taking down some powerful opponents, but some saddlers? Manowood sighed. If we fight them, we'll get a bad reputation. We'll be imprisoned. By who exactly? Who's going to imprison us? People won't like us. Best just go to another town, make a living there. Just, you know, slink off ignominiously. And that's my final decision. Pradeli threw up his hands. Okay, I guess. Oh, added Manowoodan. And we shouldn't make saddles anymore, because, you know, they might come after us. Of course! Learn a completely different craft. Totally roll over in fear. I know, why don't we all get a matching tattoo that says coward? We could put them right across our foreheads. You think? No, no I don't. But despite his vocal objections, Manowoodan made it clear that this was the only path they were choosing. And rather than stay and fight, they indeed left ignominiously. <laughs> What should we take up now then? asked Pradeli. Shield making, said Manowoodan confidently. Do you know anything about shield making? No, said Manowoodan, who was now clearly deep in the tech bro mindset, as he replied, but how difficult can it be? We'll give it a go. 
Pradelli rolled his eyes. What Rhiannon and Kigva thought of all this is unrecorded. And despite Pradelli's doubts, the shield-making startup was just as successful as the saddle-making before it. They used the same blue enamel colouring on the shield bosses, and they successfully disrupted the whole shield-making industry in their new town. And yes, people, this is a real medieval story that has at its heart a significant interlude about economic competition, the free market, the very relevant modern idea of innovation, startups, disruption, and its impact on existing businesses. Good news for the customers, bad news for shield makers. It also touches upon something not much discussed now about how the quote unquote free market is not some natural law but requires the coercion of the state to support its existence. And no such ideologically-minded state existed in this town. For those damn freedom-hating lefty socialist shield-makers, they got together. And in the words of Scottish economist and capitalist poster boy Adam Smith, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public. And so, in this case, the Shield Makers Union wanted everyone to buy their crappier old shields that they'd spent their lives working on and hadn't got a big part of the idea from a giant and, you know, make their livelihood again. And so they decided that they'd do the obvious thing and kill these market disruptors. Which, yeah, it's definitely a solution to the issue. Taxi firms, hotel owners, take note. Once again, I assume that a Shield boss was left in a bed once again, Manawoodan came to Pradery. My friend, we're going to have to leave. No, 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 no. Some shield makers? Let's see how well their shields do against my axe. Do you know, Manawoodan, that on the day I was born, I was abducted by a giant possibly disembodied claw, and I survived that. My mother was put on trial falsely for my murder, and she survived that. And now you want all of us to be scared of some craftsmen. We are building a life here. We can get two houses for us with white picket fences and become patrons of the local Rotary Club of our earnings, Manawoodan. Isn't that what you wanted? But no, the tiniest bit of challenge and you're going to give all of this up. Make us flee again? Look, if we make trouble, Kazwafflin will hear of it and he'll come for us. That's it, isn't it? You're scared of him. Terrified of him. We're going to give up our lives again because of your fear of him? I went and saw him. He was fine with me. So what if we cause some disruption? If it's in self-defence, I'm sure he'd understand there's no law against making good shields. Man of wooden, we can't let these communists win, can we? And anyway, if he does object, he took your throne. Maybe it's time we... No, no, Pradary. We're going to go to another town and tackle another trade. Pradery threw up his hands again. Oh, I wonder what'll happen when we turn out to be preternaturally good at that trade. We'll have to just leave all over again, won't we? Ah, no, 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 said Manawoodan. For this time, we'll take up shoemaking. Shoemakers are meek and cowardly and will not have the heart to fight us. So this time, we'll be fine. And listener, to me, that line is hilarious because it's actually in the story and... Well, long-term listeners of the podcast might remember the story The Shoemaker of Constantinople, one of the wildest stories of the podcast. 
And if that's anything to go by, well, Manor Wooden's thoughts on the meekness of shoemakers... Well, sufficient to say they certainly don't match the character of the shoemaker in that episode. I don't know anything about shoemaking, objected Prairie. But I do. I'll teach you how to stitch, and I've got a plan of how we can disrupt this market. And Manor Wooden was really into this one. He did have a plan. They wouldn't tan the leather, they'd outsource that. They'd focus on using the best quality leather. He made friends with the goldsmiths, who made buckles for the shoes. And he watched the goldsmiths learn the process himself, and then he started doing the goldsmithing. Which, yeah, in a time before intellectual property rights, seems like pretty sketchy behaviour. And I've got some sympathy here with the people whose livelihoods this party of innovators were casually ripping apart. Pretty soon, the Sons of Clear branded shoes became the only shoes to buy. Air Jordans had nothing on these. But of course, the shoemakers were not the pushovers that Manawooden had thought they would be. So a day came pretty soon when Manawooden had to go to Praderi and tell him the oh-so-surprising news. Word about town is that the shoemakers want to kill us. Really? How unexpected. Deadpan Praderi. Another town then? No, said Manawooden. I think this time it's back to Dovid. Oh, okay then said Frideri, who, I think at this point, is either just so keen to stay with his mother that he'd go along with whatever Manor Wooden planned, or was just really unimaginative and flat out of other options. Clearly, the relationship between these two had deteriorated quite significantly since Frideri had offered Manor Wooden his kingdom and his own mother. But despite that, back to desolate, devoid Dovard they went. To the court, in fact which now seemed all the more empty, lonely and barren, the effects of whatever awful enchantment had swept away the land's people, seeming all the starker, by contrast with the life surrounded by people that they had been living. The land seemed quieter, stiller. Wrong. But this seemed to be all that there was for them. As an aside, I really wish we knew what the women were doing slash thinking here, but we don't. It appears that they were simply going along with Manawooden's decisions. He was the most senior, and that seems to be how it worked. Him, the heir to the throne of the island, who wouldn't stand up to a saddler whose nose was out of joint. A year and a month passed, and there was no plan to move on. They were stuck. Living a repetitive, lonely, hunter-gatherer lifestyle in Dovard. Quick note, listeners, this is probably the place I would have split the episode if I was going to do it as a two-parter. We're slightly more than halfway through the story now, but there's the discussion section at the end as well. So if you fancy taking a break, I'd suggest doing it now and coming back later. But if you're really into it and just can't wait to find out what happens next, then please keep listening. So on one day, like any other, as all the days were, Pradeli and Manawudden were out hunting, still clearly tolerating each other enough to do the basics. The dogs bound ahead of them, and a few seemed to get a scent, dived into a thicket, 
emerging a few seconds later, ears down, hair standing on end, whining in fear, and heading back at rapid pace towards the men. Coming after them emerged a great wild boar. But no ordinary boar. This was as white as polished ivory, gleaming in the sun. This didn't discourage the two men, who saw in this a welcome break in their everyday routine. Whooping and hollering, they encouraged their terrified dogs back, back, and the pack regrouped. Re-energised, the hounds bore down upon the shining swine, Pradari and Manowoodan quick behind them. The creature turned and it ran, and they pursued. It seemed the boar couldn't flee fast enough to outrun them, nor could they catch it. On and on they ran, chasing the boar through the woodland, until it finally burst out of the trees into a clearing which sloped downwards. And ahead of the boar was a fortress, vast, towering and gleaming just as the boar was. A fortress on which it seemed the mortar had barely set. Manowoodan and Pradeli drew to an abrupt halt gazed up at this building they'd never seen before, and which shouldn't be here. This was in Duvard, remember? There were no more buildings. But the dogs were of course all wrapped up in the chase, and they pursued the boar right into the fort, baying and barking as they did, and then immediately there was silence. Not the barking of the dogs echoing from the fortress, not the sound of men inside it neither. The building seemed as abandoned as the rest of the country and somehow abandoned by the dogs and boar as well. Right, let's go, said Pradeli, and he started to make haste towards the fortress. But Manawudan didn't move. He shook his head. No, no, this isn't right. That fort's never been here before. We've been all around this place, we would have seen it. I am sure that whatever magic is responsible for the harrowing of this land has caused the appearance of that fort. This was too much for Prideli, the final straw. You know what? You might be right, you probably are right, and I know you're going to want to run away from it again, but these are my dogs in there, and I am not just abandoning them. But Manowoodan was unmoved by Prideli's words and shook his head. And disgusted at the actions of his friend, this once distinguished warrior, Prideli, left him standing there and made for the fort. Inside there were no signs of dog nor boar, nor any indications of life or items that would support life. There weren't any rooms, just one big space open to the sky, decked out in marble as white as the boar. In the very centre of the fortress was a well, and hanging over it a golden bowl, supported by chains that reached into the very clouds. The eerie strangeness of it all put Pladeri on edge. And he would have left then. But that bowl, it enraptured, it entranced, it quite literally enchanted him. He was drawn towards it. He put his hands on it and he felt them adhere to it as though they were coated in glue and his shoes stuck fast to the slab beneath him with just as strong a grip. He tried to cry out and found his mouth utterly shut fast, and he was unable to make a sound. Manowoodan waited until evening, and with no sign of Tadere or the dogs, he abandoned them, returned to the court buildings where they made their home. 
Kigva must have been off doing something else, having crazy Kigva adventures. But Rhiannon was waiting impatiently, worried for her husband and son, for they had been away far too long. And at first her heart leapt when she saw Manawadan, but then she saw that he was alone. He was honest with her, told her the full story as he knew it, that the last he saw of her son was entering that fort. And Rhiannon reacted with understandable fury to her husband's oddly calm recounting of events. What a terrible companion you have been to him, your good friend, my own son. Now perhaps she thought of all the other times he'd retreated from conflict. She shook her head at him as frustratedly as Pradeli had, and out of the court she went. Where are you going, woman? To get my son back, of course. Are you coming or not? It was now or never, really. Time for him to make a choice. And Manawudan stood there, making no attempt to move. Utterly disgusted, Rhiannon set off in the direction he'd indicated the fort was. She found it easily, and entered filled with furious determination. And of course, she found Pradery there gripping the bowl, and up to it she went, shook him. Come on, let's go. But she too caught a sight of that glittering gold bowl, grabbed hold of it, and both of them were stuck there firm. At the end of that day, when night fell, there came a great noise, heard all across the land. A noise like that years before, when they had ascended the hill. And accompanying the noise was a blanket of mist. And when it lifted, the fort was gone, along with all its occupants. Now I don't know how much Manawudan told Kigva. It's not at all clear to me how much he explained his role in the disappearance of her husband and his own wife. She was certainly pretty damn distressed to find them gone. Very, very upset in fact. Her only constant companions of all these years disappeared. But Manawudan stepped up. He told her that he would take care of her. Somehow he found the gall to say that he had been a good and true friend to Pradeli and he would be just as good and true a friend to his wife. Which, oh my goodness, that is a hell of a line to spin given how he'd actually acted. But she bought it hook, line and sinker, probably good that she did. And while it was a pretty bad time for her, she did eventually pull herself together. And now without the dogs and without Pradeli, maintaining a life by hunting was going to be hard. Manawudan had to make them a living, because apparently making a living wasn't a thing that women could do, or at least noble women could do. And he, he was straight back on the shoes again, with those golden buckles. And he actually became known as one of the free golden shoemakers, which, yeah, it's not a lot, but it's strange that it happened three times. So, a recap at this point. After all the people of Dovid had disappeared, the four of them had lived in that abandoned land for a couple of years, then they had left for other towns, moving through three separate towns, practicing crafts, then they'd come back to Dovid, lived there for a year, then Pladeli and Rhiannon had been taken, and Kigva and Manawudan were now going to leave Dovid again, go to some town, and practice a craft. It seems like they were kind of out of ideas.
and a whole of a year passed. A lot of time passes in this story. Manawudden's work made all the other shoemakers look rubbish in comparison. And listener, you now know a lot more than Manawudden does, because you know what is going to happen next. And yes, it does. Threatened by the shoemakers, Manawudden decides his only option is to leave, along of course with Kigver, and he doesn't even bother trying to go around other cities, he just goes straight back to Doved. And if it feels like the story is getting a bit repetitive, then, well, it is. And I could say that this was the result of some lazy storytelling, but actually, I like to think this represents the real-life challenges of someone in Manawudden's situation. A man who is just completely out of ideas, lacking in any general direction, vacillating from one thing to another, none of them bringing him the satisfaction or the conclusion that he so needs. I'm sure that at least some of you can empathise with that. But now at least he had a new plan slash hyperfixation. For this time, he used his profits from shoemaking to buy some snares, some fishing gear, and most importantly of all, a huge load of wheat. Because apparently he was now all about that Stardew Valley organic farming life. He went fishing, he started to trap animals, and most importantly of all, he began to work the soil. Soon he had a small wheat field, and then another, and then a third. And apparently he was as good a farmer as he was at everything else he turned his hand to. Everything that didn't involve being a friend and a husband, I mean. But work-wise, he was great. He sowed his wheat, and he waited for the seasons to pass. Manawudden was happy. Yes, it had been a couple of years since Rhiannon and Frideri had been missing, and much longer since the rest of Dovard had disappeared, seemingly forever presumed dead. But it was the first day of harvest. His field would ripen tomorrow morning. He looked over it. He sighed contentedly. This life with just one other person was probably far better than having taken back a whole kingdom in a revenge quest. That sounded like a lot of hassle. He was content with his fields. The next morning he got up in the light of a grey dawn and made for his field, proud and ready to reap what he had sown. But the sight that greeted him, he was appalled. For while there was a field of wheat in front of him, all the ears, the good bit of the wheat, all the ears had been broken off, A field of naked stalks was all that was left. Manawudden was deeply shocked, but he did have three fields. He pulled himself together. The wheat in the second field was looking ripe. It'd be ready tomorrow. He'd come back and reap it then and everything would be okay. Because, totally in keeping with his character as already established, he was pretty damn bad at recognising either narrative convention or, you know, just thinking... Hmm, I wonder what happened here. Maybe I should take precautions to ensure it doesn't happen again. No, no, no. This timid man had a sleep, returned at dawn the next day, and... (gasps) Who would have thunk it? All the corn stripped bare. (gasps) Shocker. If Pradery had been there, I think he would have given a good eye roll. 
But finally, for some unknown reason, at this late stage in the game, Manawadan saw some sense. Shame on me if I don't keep watch tonight, he told himself. For surely, whoever carried off the wheat from both of these fields will return. And this time, I will be ready for him. Well done, Manawadan. Well done. And so he gathered his weapons, returned to the field as night fell. Now, for the first time in years, he was ready to do battle. Mess with his kingdom, his adopted people, his saddle-making business, his best friend, his wife. Fine if you must. But his wheat fields? That was another matter. Now, Manawadan would make his stand. He waited in the darkness, prepared for mighty battle with whatever thieving monster lurked in the night. As midnight grew close there came a sound, a cacophonous, tumultuous sound, akin to that on the mound or when the fort disappeared. A noise that filled the air and drowned out not just all other noises, but even the forts inside his own head. The earth rumbled and shook as they approached. He readied his weapons. In the moonlight he could make out the source of the sound, and he was aghast. For there was an army descending on his field of wheat. From every direction they came, until they filled the fields. A humongous number of them. Of mice. Gathered in one horrible, sickening, crawling throng. They were everywhere he looked, a sea of them, scrambling over the ground and each other, a wriggling, writhing mass of bodies, each and every one seemingly with one goal in mind. His wheat. There was not a thing he could do to keep them away. Swipe at mice he did, but they were too fast for his blade. It was as though he was trying to cut water. Up the stalks the mice climbed, tearing off the ears of corn and then fleeing, carrying their booty with them. Within mere seconds the field was stripped bare and his precious ears of wheat were being carried away by this impossible horde of rodents. But despite the ground being thick with them as a swarm of gnats, his incredibly sharp eyes somehow picked out one of them. A particularly large, fat one, moving slower than the rest. That he grabbed firmly, picked it up and dropped it into one of his gloves, drawing the drawstring on the glove tight so that the mouse was held there in a makeshift bag, struggling for all it's worth, but unable to get free. In disgust and sadness, Manawoodan had to leave the rest of them to it. He returned to the court buildings with his lone prisoner, arriving just as day was dawning. Kigva was just rising herself and was understandably surprised to see Manawoodan returning home at this time, and surprised further as he hung his glove on a peg, a glove which was moving around frantically of its own accord. What do you have there? she asked. A thief who I caught stealing from me, declared Manawoodan grandly. What sort of thief fits in a glove? And rather than being deliberately obtuse as I thought he might, Manawoodan explained it all to her, finishing with a And this one I shall hang tomorrow, as thieves should hang. 
Kigva, who over the years had grown accustomed to Manowoodan's strange quirks of character, said to him, Hang it. Really? A mouse? Give it a trial, will you? I, I know you're Lord of Dovered and all, but this is a mouse. Why don't, you know, just squash it here or let it go? It's just a mouse. To which Manowoodan replied, Shame on me if I do not hang that which I have caught. I would hung them all if I could. Can you give me a reason why I should not hang it? Uh, apart from stopping you looking like an idiot? Yes. I suppose no then. All right. No skin off my nose. Good. Then hang it I shall. And where was he to hang it? He would return to that certain mound. That mound where all this had begun. And now is the bit where I start to wonder if I've done Manor Wooden a little bit dirty. Or the story I'm telling possibly has. Because this is the first point of this story where I find myself thinking, hang on, maybe Manor Wooden actually knows more than he's letting on. Maybe he's not quite as boneheaded, timorous and irrational as he appears. But if that is so, well, he really likes to keep his secrets to himself in a very smug, irritating way. The man climbed to the top of the mound that morning and started to erect a scaffold. A little tiny one. Patently ridiculous, yes. But he was committed to doing this the proper way. As he worked, from the top of the mound, he could make out a man in the distance, approaching the mound at a reasonably paced walk. A man dressed in poor, threadbare clothes. The first man he'd seen in Dovered for quite some time. Now before we discuss the identity of this man, I'd like to take him aside and inject a little discussion of chronology here. In the first episode of Telling the Tales of Mabinogion, I told you that Dovid was a real Welsh kingdom existing after the Romans left to around about the time of the Norman Conquest, but that when talking about these stories we could basically disregard this, and that that story was essentially set in a mythical Dovid long, long ago in the very mists of time. Quote, Long, long ago, in the very mists of time, when the world was still wild and magic lived. Unquote. I still think this holds for the stories of the Mabinogi as I've told them, far back in a mythic time. And crucially for right now, these stories appear to be set in a world that's pretty devoid of Christianity. Now, while that's how I've told them, it's not quite true of the stories as written. People often make reference to God, but usually just as a form of speech. There's not much Christianity in how the people act or live their day-to-day lives. However, the next bit of the original story here has a cast of explicitly Christian characters. They don't fulfil a Christian function, but it is a cleric, a priest and a bishop that we will meet. And that entirely situated quite correctly within Dovid, which exists as a kingdom after the fall of the Roman Empire, at a time when Christianity would indeed have come to Britain. So in that way, the chronology makes sense. But in the way I've told this story, in the way I think about it, That doesn't fit so well. I absolutely assume that the Roman invasion has not happened yet. Why am I saying all this? Because I'm letting you behind the thinly veiled curtain of my thoughts. 
and because I'm cursed with some overfixation on internal consistency, I'm going to remove those Christian elements from the story. But because of my fixation on trying to be honest with what I'm doing and how these relate to the original stories, I'm also going to tell you that. Thus, presumably somewhat lessening the impact of actually removing them in the first place, and so kind of undermining the whole exercise. I've changed the story here, guys. Doesn't really matter for the form of the story. Oof. Okay. You know what? I imagine it's this kind of interlude that breaks up the tension, disrupts the narrative flow, that just has people coming back to listen to this podcast time and time again. (sighs) Thank you for sticking with it anyway. Back to the story. Manor Wooden was looking down at the man approaching him. A poor man, it seemed. A wandering peddler, perhaps. Manor Wooden gave him a cheerful greeting. Hello there, good sir. And where have you come from today? Oh, you know, just England that isn't called England yet because no angles. Manorwood nodded at this, made perfect sense. And the man said, I've been singing there, you see, and now I'm going back home to one of the other kingdoms of Wales which isn't called Wales yet. Interesting, said Manorwooden. Particularly interesting because for, and he looked at his fingers for a bit, for about seven years, I've not seen anyone in this land apart from me and my three companions. And now, here you are. (laughs) Funny that, replied the poor man. Anyway, what are you up to? Oh, said Manorwooden. You know, just hanging this mouse. I found it stealing from me. So I'm building a scaffold and very normally having myself a little execution. As is my right as lord of this land. A mouse, said the poor man. Surely it's not right of a man of your noble bearing to be bothered with such things. Bit beneath you, isn't it? Why don't you let it go? Hmm, no. I don't think I'll be doing that. Um, well, I've made a little money singing. A pound! Because apparently they used pounds back then. Why don't you take it and let the mouse go, just so you aren't bothering it. A man of your status wouldn't want to demean you, so. No, said Manor Wooden, firmly. The man looked downcast, but eventually said, Okay, as you wish. And off he went. Manowoodham whistled a little tune as he attached the tiny crossbeam to the scaffold he was constructing. And lo and behold, what was this? Another man! Two in a day! Would wonders never cease? This one was on a horse, approaching even more rapidly than the first. And he was wearing rather finer clothes. A well-to-do merchant, perhaps. Good day to you. And good day to you, sir. Lovely day. Lovely. And what are you up to? asked the merchant, innocently. Building a scaffold to hang a mouse that stole from me. Perfectly normal behaviour. The merchant looked all aghast. A man such as you defiling yourself with such work? That's not right. I'll give you three pounds if you let it go. Manowoodan cast the man a withering glance. I want no payment except to see justice done, thank you very much, sir. I let you be on your way wherever it was you happened to be going. The merchant looked downcast but said, 
Well, okay. And he turned and rode back the way he had come. Tiny scaffold now erected. Manowoodan took a piece of string and made a tiny little noose out of it. Kind of adorable. And he was attaching it round the mouse's neck when... What did he see? He raised his hand to his mouth in mock surprise. A noble lord and all his entourage and retinue around him, making for the mound at considerable pace. Hello there, he called out. Well met, sire, said the noble lord. Is this really fooling anyone? Manamudan almost asked. But not quite. He humoured the man for a third time. Just passing through, are you? Precisely. Oh, and uh, what are you doing? You know, hanging a thief. It's just a mouse. It is a mouse, and it stole from me, and therefore it should hang. That's the law. And it's about to. Right now. The noble began to really panic now. Seven pounds if you don't do it, to save you the embarrassment. Manowood enormous laughed. No, I will not. Um, twenty-four pounds. Another withering glance. No, not that much again. The nobleman gestured around and seemed to be flailing for options. He gestured to the horses that accompanied him. Every one of those horses and all the baggage on them with all my gold and jewels and other noble stuff I've brought with me. Manor Wooden raised the struggling mouse up, string around its neck. No. Then what do you want? I thought you'd never ask. Manor Wooden looked the man dead in the eye and held his gaze steady. The release of Rhiannon and Plideri. The nobleman's face fell. He paused, but only for an instant. You shall have it. But that's just for starters, said Manawuddin, still tightly clutching the terrified mouse, the scaffold hungering for it. What? spluttered the not really a nobleman. What else could you possibly remove the enchantment from the seven cantrefs of Dovid and return them to their previous state before all this began? Yes, yes, of course, of course, I'll, I'll do that. Just let, let the mouse go. One more thing. Yes. Who is this mouse, exactly? And he dangled the fat mouse threateningly. The supposed noble hung his head. She is my wife. Your wife? Uh, And she is pregnant with my child. That is how you came to catch her. Catch her stealing from me, said Manowoodan still not quite ready to let the stealing go, despite the man's clear responsibilities for some rather larger crimes. Yes, yes, she was stealing, yes. And who are you? I am Hluid, and as you have ascertained, I place the enchantment on Dovid, on Rhiannon, and on Pteri. Those two have been imprisoned in my court since the day they disappeared. He sighed and backstory tumbled out. Look, I have a reason for all this, you know. I am a good friend of Gwowl. You remember Gwowl, right? Listeners, if you don't remember Gwowl, here's some context. 
He was the one who was tricked by Rhiannon to play Badger in the Bag with a magic bag, which basically consisted of him being beaten up until he gave up his betrothal to Rhiannon at his own wedding. The whole scheme is one which was kind of cloaked in artifice, cunning and magic, but which really just involved a lot of straightforward violence. Now, Manor Wooden wasn't there, but he had heard of it, and he interjected. Isn't it true that it was promised that no vengeance would ever be sought there? Cluid looked a little shamefaced. So this is revenge for Gwawl's treatment. And how does this result in you turning your wife into a mouse? Look, it's not just me on this. When my courtiers found out that you were still here, Rhiannon's husband, they wanted revenge. And they all asked to be turned into mice. The men at first, but then after the second night, well... The ladies of the court also demanded it, because being turned into thieving mice is apparently great fun, which certainly checks out. They all stole from me, said Manowoden. Yes, they all stole from you, conceded the great and mighty sorcerer, Hluid, looking a bit embarrassed. So now, he said, if you let my wife go, I'll free your friends and all the people of your land like you've asked for. Mmm, Manor Wooden thought. No. What? No. Now, at this point in the story, a lot of questions are occurring to me. Like, how exactly did Manor Wooden know all this? Why does the incredibly powerful sorcerer not just strike him down? Why didn't he take Pladeri and Rhiannon and, indeed, Manor Wooden when he took the other people of Divid? Why does Manor Wooden trust him to make any deal at all? Can't you just strike him down after getting the mouse back? And I think the answer to all these questions is basically magic is opaque and unknowable, and the rules of it doubly so. And here something, quite a lot of something, is going on beneath the surface that we, the audience, your storyteller, and anyone who would be listening, are just not privy to. I see this as almost a kind of magical duel here, and we don't know how it's working, or why it shakes out like it does. We can just see what is being said and can infer some stuff from that. But what I like to imagine beneath the surface of these words is that a ferocious magical battle is being waged. This conversation, these agreements, are merely its form in the world that we are able to understand. And it's for this reason that Manawood now starts to talk in a way normally reserved for speaking to Jin or drawing up particularly unfair tenancy agreements. I want assurances, he said. Look, I've told you, I'll give you everything you've asked for, said Hluid. All of that, yes, but also there shall be no spell on the cantrefs of Divid and none shall ever be cast. And no vengeance shall be taken on Pladeri, Rhiannon, nor on me because of this. He omitted Kigva, I notice. Maybe she was covered by vengeance on the others. Maybe she was just not important enough to matter. I kind of want to write a whole Kigva spin-off series, but that's for another day. Through gritted teeth, Hluid said, You shall have that also. And well you had, because else trouble would have come down upon you. I know, smiled Manowoden, smugly. Now set my wife free. My wife and the rest of the bargain first, please, countered Manowoden. He had won. 
Rhiannon and Pryderi were suddenly there with him, no longer stuck to a bowl. And they were able to speak, and they did so, presumably in a mixture of relief and confusion, and possibly still being quite angry with Manawood, and even though he had freed them now, that bit goes unsaid, and I am intrigued to learn what happened there, but we don't find out. And looking out from the mound, Manawoodan could see all the land inhabited again. Houses and fields and cattle and horses, and of course, people. He released the mouse, who ran back to her husband, who struck her with a magic wand and transformed her back into a beautiful pregnant woman. And then without further word, he and his retinue turned and left Dovid behind him forever. After everything has happened, this is where the story ends. After all these not very exciting adventures, learning about friendship, the limitations of the free market, enterprise, tricksy wizard tricks, Pryderi, Rhiannon and Manawoodan went home to Kigva and began to rule the land again. I'm not sure if they'd learned anything, but perhaps they were a little more grateful for the rich, well-off lives that they had, and however bored they might feel, they were not compelled in any way to go up that mound ever again. And so ends this branch of the Mabinogi. And there we go. A very different Mabinogi story, which, if you're anything like me, leaves open a lot of questions, to which, frustratingly, there are no answers. Do Rhiannon and Pryderi forgive Manawoodan because he saved them, or is the fact that he was so useless in the first place too much for them? I think we all know what I think they should do. What was Kigva thinking all the time? Why did the Enchanter not just break all the promises he had given to Manawoodan? Does Kazwathlan have an opinion on all of this? Etc, etc, etc. But as I said, no answer. Given this, given this lack of information, I think it's pertinent to have a reminder that the four branches of the Mabinogi, while one story, were compiled in the medieval period using elements drawn from both other medieval tales and from earlier Celtic mythology. And a lot of the other stories which they were drawn from and which they existed alongside have been lost. We know those other stories now only through hints. For instance, in those triads, the groups of three I mentioned earlier, which make their appearance in various Welsh manuscripts. These suggest a much broader base of stories featuring the same characters. To take just one example, I talked about the three golden shoemakers, of which Manawutan is one, as per this story, but another one is actually Kazwathlan, who, it appears in a story we don't have in its entirety, competed with Julius Caesar to win the love of a woman possibly provoking the invasion of Britain by the Romans. So the point about these lost sources and other tales is that while this story might seem a bit odd and raises questions, it might have made a lot more sense were it set in a wider context of other stories featuring these characters. Context we do not have. Or alternatively, of course, it might not have. And it is, as I said just at the start, a totally different creative team getting hold of the characters and going... So we've got warriors and sorcerers. I like it, I like it. Very, very epic, very fantastical. I love what you've done with it. But what if instead of that, they started a business? Kids love businesses. A business? Our heroes? 
Really? Yeah! Guys, I don't know how to tell you this, but I love it. How do you get such crazy ideas? Here, have the franchise. Go for it. In the end, we just don't know. Moving on, I should mention at some point that I flat out missed a line from the end of the story where, pretty stiltedly, Manawudan asks how Pradeli and Rhiannon were kept. And Hluid replies that, in his court, Pradeli had the gate hammers around his neck, while around Rhiannon's, they hung the collars of asses after they'd been hauling hay. Therefore, says the narrator, this story is called the Mabinogi of the Collar and the Hammer. Which is all just a bit strange. Sinead Davies calls it, quote, an attempt to explain the title traditionally given to this part of the story, unquote. It seems that in some version of this tale also lost, this element was maybe much larger, justifying the name, or there was an entire other reason for the name being this. But that is, of course, pure speculation. I left it out because it really didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Taking a look now at some of the other aspects of the story. This is the second and final appearance in the Mabinogi for both Lianan and Manawudan. We don't find out what happens to them after this story. Now these are two of the characters and two of the most prominent ones who many theorise are based off of old pagan gods. Manawutan having some connection to the undeniable Irish slash Manx god Mananan Maclear, same dad there you see, and Rhiannon being connected to a number of goddess or goddess-like figures including the horse goddess Epona and the Morrigan from Irish mythology. It's even been suggested that the appearance of the two of them in this story is part of a, quote, myth wherein the sea god mated with the horse goddess, unquote. Mated is a very strange word there. Anyway, it's fair to say that the exact nature of the connection between these characters and any pagan gods is highly speculative, and I'm not endorsing the reality of any of it, nor denying any of it. There is certainly a lot of debate. My inexpert summary of the overall understanding we have of this is that yes, they probably were based on older gods, but to what extent, and even the names of the gods they might have been based on, is highly up for debate. Quite possibly they share very little in common with those earlier deities. Now turning specifically to Rhiannon, aside from passing mentions in a couple of other works to the birds of Rhiannon, which pretty awesomely wake the dead and send the living to sleep, which sounds very dangerous, I've now told on this podcast all the stories of Rhiannon that are known today. And if you think about what she's done, clearly there is a big leap from that figure, who is mostly human most of the time, to a goddess figure. However, Rhiannon as a goddess is something that's really caught people's imagination in the modern world, so she crops up a lot in the 20th and 21st century in neo-pagan belief where she is treated as a goddess often and also as a character in fantasy literature. It's therefore quite likely that the goddess Rhiannon is more a reality today than in the medieval period when these branches of the Mabinogi were written down. In fact, a goddess Rhiannon might be more important now than she has been at any point in history. Rhiannon is, without a doubt, the figure from all of those in the Mabinogi who has a life outside of it that's transcended it. And while I would like these stories to be much better known 
Bran the Giant King, how to make great saddles, etc, etc. Realistically, Rhiannon is a pretty cool thing to have made it from these stories. Turning to the rest of the story, and indeed the main conflict, the enchantment placed on Dovid. There is some theorising that this is an example of a much broader theme from medieval literature, the theme of, quote-unquote, the wasteland. A theme that is pretty famous as these things go, helped in no small part by the use of this theme in the poem of the same name by T.S. Eliot, one of the most famous poems by one of the most famous poets of the 20th century. The theme of the wasteland has some similarities to what happens to Doved in the story, but also diverges in some important ways. In stories which feature a wasteland, the land is, well, self-explanatory, a land that is devoid of life, but in particular the area around a court or a castle is devoid of life, usually with one or a few inhabitants remaining in that court who are the victims of the curse on the land. The people who live outside of the court and just disappear and die, they're not the cursed ones, they're just collateral damage. This is a particular staple of our Furian stories. And actually something very similar crops up in the one our Furian story I've told on the podcast so far, that of Sir Tarquin in the Manchester episodes. Though more typically it focuses around a character called the Fisher King, who lives in that castle in the centre of the wasteland, and he usually has a wound in a place that would make one barren and infertile, that has made the land barren and infertile, in a kind of sympathetic way. You also get a similar idea in Irish mythology, but the Battle of Magma Krama features an infertile land that's brought about as a consequence of a bad decision by a ruler. Though once again, similar, but not quite the same. Doved in this story is certainly unpopulated, but it's not a wasteland in quite the same way, and... The rulers themselves aren't suffering and don't appear to have made any terrible decisions, apart from the one to go up that mound. However, quite possibly this is all part of an interlinked theme which scholar Will Parker calls an empty land theme. Now, I'm indebted to Will Parker for pointing out the link between this story and another Irish one. The Expulsion of the Daishi. While the parallels are not exact, the way that he chooses to describe the expulsion of the Daishi does make it sound very similar. Quote, it begins with the unfortunate kindred being uprooted from their original homeland by the depredations of the High King Cormac's son, an adversary too powerful to effectively avenge. A parallel with Manawudan's reaction to Kazwaflan can be discerned here. After this, they wander in search of a homeland facing at every turn the hostility of those whose lands through which they pass. Unquote. So in those broad strokes there are certainly some close similarities, but I think more pertinently than this, he points out that the historical kingdom of Dovet was founded by Irish invaders in the 300s AD. That is real history, but those Irish invaders are probably the people represented by the story The Expulsion of the Daishi. Parker goes on to suggest that the similarity of the stories and the themes might mean that, quote, the core of the third branch might be seen as the foundation myth of a Welsh-Irish royal house of Dovid, unquote. Which I think is pretty cool, if true. It means that in this tale we've got something that stretches back many hundreds of years, though I should emphasise that even if it is true, it would only be the very core of the tale, which remains 
the actual third branch I've told you, written down many centuries later, is rather different, and it doesn't really help us date the origin of the story, which presumably could have come long after the dynasty was founded. But it's still an intriguing and very real possibility. However, I'm going to raise as a sort of counter to this, and more to just show the level of uncertainty around the origin of these stories, Byron Hughes makes a compelling argument that actually the enchantment of Dovid is a pretty straightforward metaphor for the Norman invasion of the Haybarth. The Haybarth is a successor kingdom to Dovid. He refers to a reference in a contemporary chronicle which, quote, tells us that folk were sent by King Henry to the land of Dovid and seized the whole cantrip of Ross and drove away all the inhabitants from the land, unquote. In this theory, that depopulation is represented by the enchantment. And perhaps even more convincingly than that, you might remember that in the original tale, the enchanter disguises himself as a bishop at the last, not a noble like I had it. And Hughes manages to find two bishops who played very central roles in the responsibility for those clearances, therefore making one or both of them a perfect analogy for Cluid the Enchanter. This certainly makes the whole bishop bit of the tale make a lot more sense if it is such a straightforward analogy. Finally, he completes his theory by comparing Manawutan to Gluffuf, who leads a rebellion against the Norman Flemish in De Haybarth, and eventually makes peace with none other than a bishop. All of this sounds like a very neat, compelling argument, but certainly a very different one than an origin tale of the dynasty of Dovid. It's just about possible, though, that both could be true. And the point I'm making here is not to dismiss one author or the other. I am very much inexpert and have no basis to make such a comparison. The point is rather to say that multiple interpretations are available. Fundamentally, we do not know and can't really know, but there are lots of intriguing possibilities out there. Finally, just one thing to address in the story and how I told it. Manawadan's character. I was very harsh on him throughout, essentially for not wanting to fight which doesn't say much for my moral character. But I find it interesting that, while done in a nuanced way, the story generally seems to be taking his side. Sinead Davies calls Pradery hot-headed, a phrase with a rather pejorative connotation, and as far as I can see, that's what the story wants you to take away, particularly as it's the impetuous Pradery who is abducted, and Manawutan who eventually wins the day, choosing the right action at the right moment. Various of the Mabinogi stories show the ill effects of violence, and I think in that context, having Manawudan be a pacifist hero certainly makes sense. However, when I told the story, the way it's structured and the lack of explanation for a lot of what he does made it quite difficult to tell convincingly in that way, plus it was just much more fun to pile criticism upon him. Okay, so this is the longest episode to date, and I'll look to sign off here. Tarzmundan, Centre for Folklore, Myth and Magic, 27th of May 2023, time in the afternoon to be confirmed. And of course, after that, I'll be looking to see if I can expand my live storytelling, despite remaining slightly unsure whether anyone actually wants it. A massive thanks to my patrons, all of you who have supported me throughout the years. I'm going to give a shout out to those who've signed up since the last episode. 
That is Annie C. Hickman, Charlie Gultiani-Whiten, Blake Enos, Jack Mitchell, T. Klein 23 and Kelly M. It is the willingness of you guys to support me in telling these silly little stories that's given me the confidence to get out there and do some live storytelling, something I really didn't think I'd ever be able to have the confidence to do but a short while ago. Thank you all so much. And next I'm going to be working on a Patreon episode. If you're not a patron, you can sign up now and get all the episodes there, and you'll only ever get charged when I release a new Patreon episode, which will only ever be when I release a main feed episode. The next Patreon episode, I'm not quite sure what it's going to be yet, but I'm thinking maybe something a little creepy. For the main feed, I'll be back on my usual release schedule of approximately one every couple of months, though I'm always hoping I can speed that up, it never seems to happen. The next episode will be a Todmudden tale featuring witchcraft in honour for the centre of folklore, myth and magic, which you should get to if you can, not just for my storytelling, but generally. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can join me again soon to hear that tale. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.